verses 26, uh, 22 through 26. Jesus, after clearing the temple, after having this uh, incredible conversation with a fig tree, focuses his disciples on God and prayer. Many people pray. Many people, including, if not all of us here, at some point or another, has prayed asking God to intervene in their lives, to make their lives better, to change their circumstance, to do a miracle. Whether it involves something or someone has done to us, we pray. Even non-religious or non-church-going people will turn to prayer in times of need to appeal to a higher power for him or it to intervene to change their life. And this was made very possible, very clear, very in our face, when DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field for the Buffalo Bills in January at the game. Everybody stopped to pray. ESPN sportcasters were starting to pray on TV. There was a dependence a need. Andrew McGreeley, in an article in Newsweek, said that more than 78% of all Americans prayed at least once a week. More than half, 57%, reported praying at least once a day. In fact, Greeley found that nearly one in five Americans who are atheists or agnostics still pray daily. I'm not sure who to. But the article goes on to say the number one prayer reason people pray is for God to intervene in their lives. So let me ask this. How many of you pray? How many of you really pray? What is prayer? How would you define it? If somebody asked you to define prayer, what would you say? What do you do when you pray? One pastor said it like this, Prayer is essentially a partnership of the redeemed child of God, working hand-in-hand with God, toward the realization of His redemptive purposes on earth. What dictates how long and how fervent we pray? What do you expect when you pray? What, What do you hope for after you say, Amen. Many of us want to see our friends and loved ones saved, become believers. Many of us want to see our marriages restored or even get better. Parents pray for children. Children pray for parents. For health reasons. For finances. This morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 26, and getting a glimpse of what Jesus talked about in prayer. But before we go to the message, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for this opportunity you give us week after week to open your word, to be encouraged, to be inspired, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be empowered. God, I pray this morning as we read through this interaction with you and your disciples that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that you would help us grasp the information so that it would help lead us to transformation into the likeness of your Son. 
Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or beside you or behind you that they would hear from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 26. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, there are a lot of different angles and aspects. When we talk about prayer, we could do a long series on prayer. We could take certain prayers out of the Bible and speak on those. Prayer is biblical, and God's given some instruction and some understanding on it. But we can also agree that prayer is a mystery. Prayer is not one of those things that you can take and put in a box, compartmentalize, look at it, study it, and then figure it all out. So what I am attempting to do this morning is not that. My hope this morning is to just give us some principles on prayer and maybe some things that need to be covered in regards to what Jesus said about it. Now, Mark attaches Jesus' talk on prayer to the story of blasting this fig tree and cursing it. And so the first thing I want to look at is the contrast between faith and doubt. In verse 22, Jesus says, Have faith in God. Now, now why would Jesus say this? I mean, wouldn't it be something that they would already know? Well, I think I have seen in my own life subtly, and maybe you have too, that we can have faith in our prayer and faith in our faith and miss having faith in God. And a believer's faith must be in God. And I say this because too often we can put our faith in our prayer and not in the God to whom we pray. Meaning, God, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I had faith in my praying. And we can sometimes think that the act of praying is what will change things when it's actually the God we're praying to that changes things. Now, prayer does help us. It focuses us. It helps calms us down. It gives us perspective and sees things different. Prayer forces us to be quiet and to rest. Prayer is good for the soul. Prayer is an act of obedience. It's an act of trust. But prayer is not what we are to have faith in. It's the God of our prayers. So we have to be careful. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Have faith in God. And that God is listening. Now, Philip Yancey, in his his book, Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference, says this. Maybe you can relate to this. Some who attempt prayer never have the sense of anyone listening on the other end. Then they blame themselves for doing it wrong. Prayer requires the faith to believe that God truly listens. Now, Jesus, in his verse 30, uh, 23, uses this metaphor, a familiar metaphor, of the mountain. 
Verse 23, Truly I say to you, but whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Jesus talks about the mountain in this passage, in Matthew 17 and Luke 17 as well. Now, this idea of mountain is figurative. Remember what had just taken place. Jesus had just cursed the fig tree for appearing to have fruit, to find out it was barren, it was empty. And in Matthew's account, he ties that interaction with the fig tree to prayer. Listen to Matthew's account. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked. Matthew 21, verses 20 through 22. How did the fig tree wither all at once, they asked. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast in sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, Jesus was not into the mountain-moving business physically. It would have been cool to be like, Mount Everest, let's move you over here. But that's not what he was doing. The mountain was figurative. Using the phrase mountain, Jesus was referring to figuratively, but was giving them a visual physically. They were standing there with the fig tree, and some scholars think that they were looking at the Mount of Olives. If you say to that mountain, move it, it'll be moved. Jesus oftentimes used tangible things to relate and teach about intangible things. Parables, seed and the sower, wheat and grain, bread, mustard seed. This is one of those times. And whenever the disciples looked at that mountain again, they would be reminded about faith in God. This idea, this metaphor about mountains was a vivid phrase of removing difficulties. And we can still hear that metaphor all the time. Those mountains are big. I'm facing this mountain. They're solid. They're intimidating. They can be overwhelming. And one of the hardest things about mountains is that you can't see on the other side of the mountain. How many of you grew up playing that, uh, singing that song on a bear hunt? Chasing through the woods, you come to the you can't go under it, can't go around it. You know that song? I don't know why it comes to me when I think about this, but this is what came to me. Because sometimes you look at the mountain and you go, God, I can't go around it. I can't go under it. I guess I'm just going to have to climb over it. And it seems intimidating. It seems big. Many of us, if not all of us, have faced mountains or are facing mountains this morning. But notice this about Jesus and his command to have faith in God about moving mountains. The mountain Jesus refers to is that difficulty or obstacle that immobilizes you to experience and serve Jesus. Notice the mountain was not a mountain to be moved so that I could feel better. That my life would be better. Remember, he connects it back to the fig tree, that if this mountain's moved, I can bear more fruit. If this mountain was moved, I could get what I want. That's not what Jesus is teaching. 
Maybe you've heard or seen people say that, well, just pray this mountain's moved and you can have whatever you need. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying. It's taken out of context. Moving the mountain is not a freedom to do whatever we want, but a freedom to do whatever God wants and is needed to advance the gospel and his kingdom. That's the moving of the mountain. Not focused on selfish desires, but for the pleasing of the heart and mind of God. There's a big difference. One commentator said this, The faith Mark seems to have had in mind is not that which is needed to work spectacular miracles, but to accomplish the Christian mission. God desires to hear all prayers from us. Don't get me wrong. But as far as in relationship to the mountains we want God to move in our lives, it has to do with producing fruit. The mountain is about an obstacle that keeps us producing fruit, just like the fig tree. So let me ask this. You have faith. What is the opposite of faith? The opposite of having faith is having doubt. Jesus connects these two in verse 23. And does not doubt in his heart but believes. Now, how often do you say or have you heard, I doubt it? When's the last time you said it? What were you referring to? I think it's closely linked to, well, I don't think so. I'll give you some examples. Are gas prices ever going to go back down? I doubt it. Are tourists ever going to find their way around Hilton Head? I doubt it. Are we going to get out of church by 12 o'clock? I doubt it. So what are we saying? What are we meaning when we say I doubt it? We are looking at all the details and circumstances of a situation. We're filtering it through past experiences and then we're making a judgment on how we think things are going to play out. In fact, the biblical definition of doubt is the Greek word that combines two different thoughts, duo, which means two, and krino, which means judge. We take two things and we judge them. So the meaning of doubt is to judge between two things or two outcomes. So in prayer, what are the two things or outcomes that we're judging? Faith in God or no faith in God? Can God do this or can he not? Have you ever thought about what causes you to have a mind of doubt? It's our own perceived notions about outcomes. Parents, how many times have you ever doubted your children? Whether they told you the truth or not? Whether they cleaned their room? Kids, how many times have you doubted your parents? How much doubt do we carry with us into our marriage, our spouses? How much doubt do we carry with us at work? It's easy to carry doubt into those situations because people have let us down. In fact, we even doubt ourselves because we've let ourselves down. All have caused doubts. 
because of people's words or their actions or their interests. And historical experiences can lead us to doubt or bring a cloud or a fog that can hold us back from believing again. But we have to be very careful and very aware if we're taking those same historical experiences of others and even ourselves and placing them on God. Will God come through? I doubt it. Is God good? Romans 8.28 But we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. No doubt about it. And what Jesus is saying is that our doubts in God hinder our prevailing prayers. And so in contrast, he says, have faith in God and don't doubt. That does not mean have faith in God that he will do everything exactly how you want him to do it. You have faith in God that he will do what he thinks is best in his time. Don't doubt that. Where does that come from? It comes from communing with God on a regular basis. Being with Him, connecting with Him, and getting to know Him. Now Jesus first shows us to look at our vertical relationship in regards to prayer, then He focuses on our horizontal relationship. Forgiveness versus unforgiveness. Verse 25 says this, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. Now, one of my greatest and most compelling examples of forgiveness and prayer is Jesus on the cross. We looked at this at Good Friday when Jesus said to his Father, Father, Abba, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. It's one of the most powerful lines in all the New Testament. It's a sobering thought for all who pray. Jesus, in talking to his Father, trusting, having faith in his Father, says to his Father, forgive them. Who's them? The ones that had beat him? That had betrayed him? That were hurling insults at him? That were whipping him? That were crucifying him? Forgive them. Have you ever considered the connection of the unforgiveness of others and our prevailing prayer with God? Imagine if Jesus couldn't forgive. God wouldn't be able to forgive us. Now, at first, it seems that when we say that God forgives us, it almost has this tie to it that feels like God's ability to forgive us is contingent on our ability to forgive other people. That's not exactly what this is saying. 
We understand the scriptures, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no contingencies listed there. God's ability to forgive is not based on us. The cross reminds us of that. The cross is, means that we are forgiven past, present, and future of all the sins. We're forgiven. We simply see that in our confession of sin, and when our experience of confession of sin, it brings about our experience of forgiveness. That we're able to walk in forgiveness and the freedom found in forgiveness because of the purchased sin that was already paid for in Christ. And as human beings, one author said this, as followers of Christ, one of the most important things we need to learn in life is how to forgive ourselves and others and to know that we have been forgiven by God. Do you know? Do you know that you are forgiven by God? Because me and you are those people who didn't know what we were doing. And Jesus forgives us. Now let me ask you this. Whenever you think about God and forgiveness, you now be real with God, be real with yourself. Do you ever think, God, that's a really good idea. That's a good suggestion to forgive somebody. I'll think about that one. Like you kind of think, that's, Maybe I'll do that. Or do we recognize it as a command? Forgiveness is not optional on our part, but rather a mandate from God. Now, I am not naive to think that forgiveness is easy. Forgiveness can be one of the most difficult things we ever do. I'm not naive to think that there are people here this morning that have a very difficult time forgiving someone. Currently or in their past. That they have been severely wounded and hurt. And the consequences of that hurt make it hard to forgive. And many of us may think because of the way and the depth of how great our hurt and pain is that in some way it gives us a license to hold out on forgiveness. And maybe there's some here that look at their own lives and realize how much pain and hurt they've caused others they can't forgive themselves. Corey Timboom, World War II survivor of the concentration camp, said this, Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. As long as you and I continue to harbor bitterness, resentment, revenge, retribution in our hearts towards someone else, we allow that individual to have a controlling factor in our lives. And it has been said, and this is a really powerful statement, the most influential person in our life is the person we have not forgiven. That person is holding us back from receiving and experiencing the freedom of forgiveness from God. 
Now, I don't know if you're like me, and hopefully you're not, but let me just say this and see if it resonates. Most of the time in my life, the reason I hesitate to forgive is because in my mind, I have equated granting forgiveness as surrender or defeat. Or that I'm acknowledging that the other person's actions were not that big a deal to me. Or that they were justified. Or that my ability to hurt them back is going to be taken away. And so I hold forgiveness. Anybody relate? And that's not the picture of forgiveness at all. Jesus on the cross in front of his accusers and the people that were torturing him did not deny the reality of what they were doing, but said, forgive them. And there was no defeat in his voice. And it did not justify their behavior. Here's the connection of forgiveness with God in prayer. Once you and I have received and experienced forgiveness of God, there is an expectation for us to forgive. It's what Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. We didn't deserve or earn forgiveness. It was freely given to us. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you are to love. And some of you are thinking, well, Matthew, how many times do I have to forgive? I'm glad you asked because Peter asked Jesus that same question. Matthew 18, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall I, my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? Up to seven times? That sounds good. Just seven times. Is that good? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter and to us, don't keep count. That's my job. I want to make sure you understand a really critical point, and that's this. God is not looking at our ability to forgive, but rather our willingness to forgive. And God will meet us at our point of willingness to give us the ability. Let me say that again. God is not looking for my ability to forgive. He's looking for my willingness to forgive, and he will meet me in my willingness to give me the ability to forgive. It's a huge blessing and a huge comfort. So some of you are saying, well, Matthew, how do I forgive those who've sinned against me? Well, here's, here's three things that maybe you can think through. One is meditate daily on what Christ went through in order for you to be forgiven. Hebrews 12.3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Second thing to think about, examine your own heart daily before the Lord with all honesty, asking the Holy Spirit to determine whether or not you have a conflict in your heart towards somebody else. And be honest. Third thing is forgive quickly and verbalize your forgiveness to God in prayer. There's a final point I want to look at. It's not specifically in the text, but I think there's an overtone that Jesus is trying to get, and that's the difference between pride and dependence. It's an attitude I think Jesus wants us to bring to the table. 
Too many times I hear people going through difficult situations and difficult problems. They're trying to figure it out, 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 trying to figure it out. And then they go, oh, I can't figure it out. I'm going to pray about it. 1 Timothy one twenty one says this, Paul to Timothy, First of all then, first of all then, I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. First of all. First of all shows your dependence on God rather than yourself. And this was very much played out when DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field. Everybody was dependent. Nobody had a clue. And the first thing they did, they started to pray because everything else was not going to work. When we pray as a last resort, we are saying we are still in control of our lives until we run out of solutions. People come to me all the time to talk about things, their life, their jobs, their kids, their marriages, their circumstances. And the question I always ask them, so if you come to me and talk, I'll be glad to, but know you're going to get this question, so be ready. What does God think about it? How are you processing that with Jesus? It is useless for us to go to God and ask for his guidance unless we are willing to be obedient enough to accept it. How dependent on God are you? Really. Dependence is not only a position we have before God, but also an approach of our soul. I want to close with a quote and four questions. Prayer is designed not to get our situations resolved, but to change us. If prayer only changes our circumstances and it doesn't change us, it accomplishes little of lasting value. So let me ask you these questions. In reflecting on your prayer life, which characterizes you best, faith or doubt? If someone were to ask you to describe your prayer life to them, what would you say? time spent, your motive, list of things, or do you just simply enjoy his presence? What mountains in your life are you asking God to be removed so that you can produce fruit? Are there people you need to forgive so that your prayer life is not hindered? Do you believe God's forgiven you? Maybe this morning you need to hear loud and clear First and foremost, you are forgiven. The cross screams that you are forgiven. Which gives us the freedom to forgive others. How deep is your recognition of your dependence on God? I'm convinced that the depth of our dependence will dictate the depth of our prayer. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage. God, I pray that you would help me and help all of us here to have faith in you and not doubt. Not faith that you will make our lives better, that you will fix all our problems, though that you will grant us faith to know that you know what you're doing that you're our first resource, not our last. Give us a heart of dependence. 
And God, I pray this morning for those who are hanging on to unforgiveness. God, would you grant them freedom and forgiveness? God, I don't know what's going on in the hearts of people in this room, but you do. And I pray that you would touch the very depth of their heart and the need that they need to respond to you this morning. I know that there are difficulties because we can't see on the other side of the mountain. But God, I pray that you would move those mountains so that we can become more and more and more like Jesus. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.